0: Welcome to the MIT Sloan Sports Analytics Conference podcast presented by ESPN and 42 Analytics. This is Jessica Gelman, who along with Daryl Morey co-founded and chair the conference with a fantastic group of MIT Sloan students each year. Thanks for listening and enjoy. Hello everyone, and thank you again for joining us at the 2022 Sloan Sports Analytics Conference. My name is Mike Duke, and I am a first year MBA student at MIT Sloan. Um, I'm excited to introduce our next panel, uh, Entrepreneurship, Fundraising, Investing, Approaches to Success. Uh, On this panel, uh, here we have Bruce Smith, uh, founder and CEO of Hydro, Mitch Lasky, partner at Benchmark and co-owner of the LAFC, Jeff Ma, Vice President of Microsoft for Startups, Meredith McFerrin, CEO and managing partner of Drive by DraftKings, and our panel is moderated by Corbin Petro co-founder and CEO of Eleanor Health. The panel will run for 45 minutes with 10 minutes for Q&A. Please submit your questions through Twitter um, using the hashtag, hashtag sports sports entrepreneurship. Uh, Hand it over to you, Corbin.
1: Great, thank you, Mike. Uh, Great to be here at another uh, Sloan Sports Analytics Conference. I'm really excited for this panel, really diverse set of perspectives. I'll kick it off just by saying 90% of startups fail including 65% of those who receive venture funding. And then I'll tell a quick story uh, about um, Mitch. So the last time I saw Mitch was almost exactly two years to the day ago um, at the Sloan Sports Analytics Conference in 2020, and we were having a debate about this little thing called COVID-19. And I, as the healthcare expert in the room with a a plethora of experts and advisors telling me what was happening from a medical perspective, I was very adamant that this was a flu and nothing more. And Mitch, as somebody who's known for predicting the future and what's going to happen, was telling us to prepare for a doomsday and a worldwide pandemic. He was definitely the bummer in the room for sure. Um, but we'll start there, and just you know, I think the big question, Mitch, is in <laughs> what uh, what data and experiences and perspective lead you to come to the to the the ideas and you know obviously make great bets that you made before, but also um, to to some of your experiences. That... Sure, I,
2: I mean I think, and it's interesting because the COVID situation was a little bit of a counterexample, but I, I think it's one. You know, talk to the, the experts in the field, and in this case, it was, it was my wife, who was kind of an armchair epidemiologist and who kind of saw the writing on the wall, um, looking at some of the early data out of China in a way that a lot of the doctors weren't even really seeing it. So, um, you know, it was kind of keeping an, an, an open mind and listening on the one hand. And then on the other hand, you know, at Benchmark, we, we kind of have this ethos of asking when we hear pitches from entrepreneurs, uh, not what could go wrong, but what could go right? and to approach investing with kind of a sense of optimism, right? What, with, with an idea that our job is really to sort of find things that work. It's very easy to say no in venture. There's the, 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 the cost of no in venture is relatively low. But we don't actually perceive that to be the case. We believe that you really have to look at the cost. What, is, what does it actually cost if you say no and the company actually works? The, the returns in venture being so asymmetric um, between uh, you know something that 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 can can work at massive scale, where the downside risk would really just be that 10, 15, 20 million dollar investment that you had made. So uh, we really try and force ourselves into that mind frame of optimism. And, and again, in the case of COVID, it was forcing yourself into that mind frame of pessimism, in terms of you know how bad could it possibly get? And the the answer to that question was pretty goddamn bad. So. Um, I think that's what, the, what, what led it, and I think it's what leads a, a lot of under underlies a lot of the decision making process that we go through.
1: Well, with with that same sort of two year lens, the past two years has been incredible um, when it comes to investing and a number of different entities and people entering into the investment space. And Meredith, I thought, I'd love to hear your journey. Um, you helped launch Drive by DraftKings, um, you know, a couple months ago in twenty twenty one. What what led to that, and what sort of environment, and how do you think about the value that strategic capital, um, in your case, can bring?
3: Great, uh, terrific, thank you. Um, hello, everyone, and super excited to be here today. Uh, yes, so we uh, I began my journey here in 2020, actually, uh, in the midst of the pandemic, which is really always interesting to start in a new position to think about raising capital to be engaging with entrepreneurs when you know that you're not going to be able to see anyone or meet them face to face um, except for in the in the virtual space of zoom and um, so that was a little bit daunting but um, it was just so obvious I think when the pandemic hit especially that something had been taken from us this like especially for those people who have spent their lives like I have immersed in sports. Um, I was a college athlete. My three kids all play college sports. One of them is now out. And so it had been a huge part of our lives and all of a sudden it was um, gone. And, and I think um, the, the incredible appetite for that kind of community, that kind of energy um, I think made all of us realize like what a role it plays in our life. And so as I thought about my next kind of step where I was in venture, I had spent my early years on the operating side. I come from a family of entrepreneurs and then got into investing in the last part, of, in the last um, 15 years. And, um, and it was just like, just so exciting to think about coming into this scene where we could um, get back into like investing and bringing back to life sports, and, and the area of tech obviously being, um, I think a huge um, just uh, ignition in, in, in the space. So, um, so I started, um, we have an interesting structure. Uh, we are not corporate venture, we are an independent VC focused on sports tech and entertainment, we do have a great strategic partner in DraftKings that we're very close to. They serve as our anchor investor. And we had three other venture firms, which is very unusual, also um, come together and kind of found us um, in our our founding days. And then we opened it up into a a much broader set of strategic LPs, um, owners of teams, athletes, execs in gaming, and um, all of whom I would say are entrepreneurs and leaders in their space with a thought that we could together um, not only invest in this space, but help to define it and, and really wrap ourselves around entrepreneurs who are interested in doing the same. And so that's what we do. We have three areas of focus, um, sports and gaming, media and fan entertainment, um, human performance, and a big data layer that uh, goes underneath that. <clears throat> and we are multi-stage, but really seed-led. Um, so, sorry to take up so much time.
1: No, no, that's, that's <laughs> great, and I think you know, the, the concept of the strategic investor and bringing value to, you're, you're seeing so much more um, individuals, groups, coming into the investing space. And I know that there are ebbs and flows in, in cycles, but, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll throw it to Bruce, since um, you're currently fundraising CEO of and founder of a company, you've been through this before. And in this, you know, in this climate, you know, you're raising from both individuals that have platforms and can be of strategic value to you, as well as from sort of more traditional venture firms. And so I'd love to I'd love to get your perspective on how that has evolved over time and what led you to, to really partner with some of these strategic investors.
4: Giving away your baby to the devils. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, I think there's this really interesting thing that I wasn't, um, and, uh, president company excluded. But the, uh, the, the real question um, that I had trouble overcoming was just the, the deep conservatism of money. And money comes with this extraordinary moral imperative. It makes you right because you've made so much money. And so when you're sitting on the other side of the table, and you have all that money behind you, you must be right. And there's this extraordinary moment, and it's so fun to be at the data conference, because what's happening in Whole Health, so I'm the CEO, founder of Hydro, I got sucked into rowing, I can't get out, Uh, I tried many times, but we're not a rowing company, we're a Whole Health company, and this thing in Whole Health, which I've discovered over the course of a lifetime of coaching at the national team level and going to the world championships, is that Data and personalization allow for whole health to actually be a reality in people's lives. And there's a massive amount of overpromising. but, you know, the fact that people exercise on bicycles is a red herring. uh, It uses two out of seven major muscle groups. And when you have an opportunity, what, what is the thing that we are all most limited in in our lives? And it is time. So when you have an opportunity to use your time better for your exercise and have a blast doing it, what an obvious choice. But every single person that I talk to about my company is like, but rowing's a niche. And it is dominated by tall, lanky people from Harvard who tend to be white. Uh, (laughs) And it's, um, no joke, and our first investor, what do you know, tall, lanky person from Harvard, 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 not even Harvard, 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 um, you know, who works on Wall Street. But uh, the opportunity to take this whole health journey and make it genuinely accessible, so exciting, so data-driven, so clear, and then getting over that hump where it's, no, it's not a niche, this is the future. And I think that uh, making that translation and the ability to connect the conservative money on one side of the table with the visionary future, that's where entrepreneurs sit. And we are trying very hard not to be the mechanism that allows Facebook and Google to hoover up all of the venture capital in the world, which is arguably their prime purpose in life, but uh, to actually change the world. And I think it's a fascinating journey and I wish I had understood just how conservative money was when we started.
1: It's interesting you, you describe that first investor, um, tall, lanky Harvard, Harvard, double-dump. <laughs> um, obviously, that, that individual related to the product mm-hmm. and really felt a connection with that product and probably you, too. And it sort of raises the question that I think you're trying to help solve and, and change, Jeff, really around – the democratization of innovation and entrepreneurship. And yeah. So I'd love I'd love to hear about the work that you're doing that's really trying to even the playing field a little yeah. bit more. Um,
5: so I um my background is I've been an entrepreneur my whole life um, from like when I was 20 to when I was what I don't know a couple of years ago, and um, right around the pandemic two years ago I got approached by Microsoft and they said hey would you come help us fix our startup problem and. Um, we're like the second most valuable company in the world, but we're terrible at working with startups. Um, Startups like innovative companies, companies in Silicon Valley, they're not using M365. they're They're not building on Azure. They're not using Teams. And that's a big problem. And so when Microsoft came to me, they said, would you want to do this? And I was like, absolutely not. You're completely irrelevant in the world that I live in. Like, why would I want to work at Microsoft? And they said, well, why don't you come up and meet some of the executives. And so I came up and I met my boss, Charlotte Yarconi, She's amazing. I met guys like Scott Guthrie and James Phillips and you know, I just, and Peggy Johnson was there at the time. It was just a great group of people. And, and every person I asked, why do you work at Microsoft? And they said, because it's the opportunity of a lifetime. I don't think you understand the scale. And at that moment, I realized that, that, that this reason that I didn't want to work at Microsoft was really the reason that I should work at Microsoft. Because the opportunity as an entrepreneur who's done a fair amount of things in his life and has had some level of success, this was a scale that I was never, ever going to be able to experience, right? And this was for me in my 40s, barely still, that I would actually be able to sort of do my next kind of like life act, which was to really change three things. So we have three goals. One is to make Microsoft the core technology choice for all startups. The second is to help startups at each phase of their journey. And the third is to make the startup ecosystem reflect the world, right? And so those are very bold, lofty goals, but if you think about them, especially the second one, which is what you're alluding to, this idea of helping startups at each phase of their journey, we think about startups journey as being, and and every startup almost having this consistent journey, which starts with an idea, moves to an MVP, a minimal viable product, they get to something called product market fit, they get to growth and then, they, and then they exit, right? And obviously not every startup gets to each phase, as we mentioned, a lot of them fail. Now the issue is at the idea stage, there are certain resources that you need, right? And <clears throat> a lot of the current cloud programs, so like our competitors, which are obviously like GCP and AWS, they all offer credits and often the credits are given out basically through venture or through accelerators or through incubators. And that kind of seems counterintuitive, right? If I'm lucky enough to get investment from Benchmark, am I really the person or the the team that needs more credits than a single developer in some rural area that has no access to meet a person like Mitch at a cocktail party or at a a Stanford event or something like that? No. And the the other thing that you need beyond access to technology is you need actual access to mentorship, networking, advice. Those are things that, that entrepreneurs need. And again, like, how do you get a mentor? How do you get a network if you don't already have one? right? So we've launched something called Founders Hub, which is available at startups.microsoft.com, which is supposed to be really trying to democratize innovation by allowing a digital platform that allows you to authenticate with your LinkedIn, answer a couple questions about your startup, and get immediate access to technology, immediate access to mentorship. And this, the idea of this is that if you make this stuff more readily available, you make it much easier to get, and make it so anyone can get it you don't need to know someone then you're all, all of a sudden like leveling the playing field and giving access to this type of thing for to people who wouldn't get it otherwise and so this is just like one of the things that we're going to do but we're 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 very focused on that third goal which is to try to make the startup ecosystem reflect what the world looks like because it doesn't right now cool Yeah,
2: okay, i want to come back to something that bruce brought up before we move on which is about the conservatism of money point, which I think is a really, really interesting thing to, to talk about a little bit. And, and, I, and it's something we really focus on because, and, and it's something it's an increasingly large problem as more and more people have come into venture from the fringes. So you now have you know, public-private funds that are coming in to invest that have traditionally never really invested in venture. And you have a lot of sort of new money that has been generated in Silicon Valley in the last couple of years that's been coming kind of up into the seed realm from the bottom. Um, and I think one of the things that, that they don't understand, which I think your, your, your comment points to, is in venture, if you are consensus correct, you're basically an index fund. And, and, and your upside is, is really capped. And my partner, Bill Gurley, uh, famous Silicon Valley venture capitalist and currently being portrayed in a Showtime series that I'm not going to discuss... Um, <laughs> is he always says that that you, you that to really make like the outsized returns that that we seek, you have to be non-consensus correct. And so in order to be non-consensus correct, you really have to fight that impulse toward conservatism. You really have to, you know, again, force yourself to think about ways in which you could be wrong about your knee-jerk reaction that it's just a rowing machine, for example, and rowing's a niche. Um, and I think that's a really important thing and something that you potentially as entrepreneurs should think about when you're pitching, um, which is to, to really understand that that exists, that, that that tension exists in the market, and to try and, and and use it a little bit to your advantage.
5: Yeah, I mean, I, you and I were talking about this off the, you know, the the way that venture has changed, right? Like, so Mitch and, you know, Bill and Benchmark, they're the OGs like they are the best like if you could get them to write a check that would be the first place you would go right and that world where they are taking bets on people and like to me like when i hear about the conservative like i i don't feel that way right and like the VCs that i've worked with in the past are, are not that way they're like going to look at like i hear your passion for rowing and that idea and like you know, it's funny, my wife, like, must have seen something you talked about because she said the exact same thing to me about rowing. And I'm like, where the hell did you get that from? So that line, that passion is, is carries, right? And, like, yeah. we were talking behind, before about the idea that that early stage investment is all about, like, this connection to emotion, right? That between the investor and the entrepreneur and, like, that, you know, I I, I want you to find an investor that is not conservative with their, because mm-hmm. I, I think there there's one out there, right?
3: Can I jump in? Uh, so I, I would just... I guess made one other comment about venture in general, and I also think um, part of what is incumbent for the entrepreneurs to do, which is to um, is, is to capture an insight. It's not just the product solution, but it's sort of the movement around which this in this solution makes sense and I think A conservative view is, like, anchored in legacy, what it is, what's here today. And the future and the optimism and the energy is all bending the arc from present to future. It's the entrepreneur's job to sell that dream, to see it, sell it, and help the world to come along with you. Right? And that means investors, and that means customers, and that means employees who are going to believe in a different tomorrow, and then here's how we're going to get there. Lay it out. And so I think that to say that one group's conservative and the other one isn't is just too simplistic. It's about the future. It is about the way to get there. And it's about those charismatic and sometimes non-charismatic, but incredibly wise entrepreneurs that, un- that, that can bring the world along with them.
1: So you're talking specifically about people and entrepreneurs and how they sell this vision. Yep. And, you know, this morning I was listening to Sue Bird and Lori Hernandez. And, you know, uh, one of them said, you know, 4% of the sponsor dollars are um, to women and 6% of the media. Maybe it's flipped, something like that. Yeah,
3: 4% of the coverage
1: yeah, and 6% yep. of the dollars. Mm-hmm. Um, well, in, in venture, in 2020, 2.4% of the dollars went to all-female founding teams. 85% went to all-male founding teams. Obviously, a lot has happened over the past two years. So I'm, cu- I'm curious, sort of, how do, you, how do you invest in what you, you, don't, you haven't seen, yeah. right? And, and have you seen any changes, Jeff, from the, the work that you're doing? I guess others, maybe Mitch, what have you seen, sort of in the in the ecosystem in terms of investing? Because I think that sort of, you know, you can you can see it, you can visualize what that looks like, and if you don't look the part, right? How do, how does how do you basically change some of those things? Yeah,
3: it's first. Okay. Uh, so representation is is absolutely important. Full stop. It um, and, and we know that in so many different dimensions of life and society and com- commerce. Uh, it's true in venture. Uh, it's, not, it's not impossible for to, to understand a different tomorrow, even if it is spoken by somebody who doesn't look exactly like you. I don't want to say that at all. I think we all have that ability, um, and I think we all should work on it if we don't. But I think that it is important that we understand there are that representation is important. That um, it, it if you don't, ha- if if people don't see someone who looks like them somewhere in the mix, they may not be as comfortable. There may not be as much of an understanding. The chemistry might not exactly exist. So, some of that is all real. We, you're right. It is, you know, it is a people business. Um, So I think um, it's hard, but I think there's work that's being done. I'm an eternal optimist, so I think there has been some movement. And I think we should grab onto that and say we need to do more. We need to open the funnel, make sure that we're just hearing from lots of different people, that we're then deeply understanding the markets that they're serving. So when we do hear from them, we actually are are open, we're good listeners. We're understanding the markets and why it makes sense. to avoid the conservative view, um, or just to the block, you know. Um, so I think we have a lot more, far, you know, a lot more room here to grow, to be better, to get more people, more women into venture capital, to fund more women and um, people of color. That's a big, you know, issue of underrepresentation. Um, but I do see that there's some progress being made.
1: I, hope, I mean, I, so, the, you know, the, data, the data's gone backwards. So oh, okay, yeah. <laughs> okay, <Yeah>. I, <laughs> I mean, okay, I'm
3: yeah, here.
1: Um, I, hope, I hope you have leading indicators <laughs> um, that, based on what you see. So there, there's a few things on
5: this. Or, and, and so I, I think you know, representation obviously is important because you want to see people that you can see yourself as, right? And, and you know, if you are a, an aspiring entrepreneur and you don't see anyone that looks like you that's a successful entrepreneur, that's a problem. The other reason that diversity is so incredibly important in the entrepreneurial world is we don't want to all be solving the same problems, right? So we, um, in my my group, have been working with someone by the name of Heather Fernandez, and she's an awesome CEO. Was early at Trulia and Zillow, and backed by yeah. um, Mitch's by Benchmark, one of his partner Bill, as as, as we mentioned. Um, she's a Latin woman, like just amazing, right? And she's like, you know, I guess Asian Filipino, right? Yeah. Yeah. So. She's, she's amazing. And she was talking about some of the challenges that she had early on you know, going to events where there was only men there and feeling like she needed to like, psych herself up and like, feel comfortable in this world. And she's an incredibly confident and strong woman. And she had that representation really didn't, wasn't there for her, right? And, and so she and I talk about that a lot. But again, what I come back to that's so interesting about why we need more diversity in entrepreneurs is because when you have, say, uh, a woman or a, a someone that's that's been at home taking care of kids for a while, they've seen a whole set of different problems that they want to solve than someone that's been in the workforce for that time. And we don't, again, want to keep solving the same problems. There has to be a diversity of problems, a diversity of things that we're trying to solve. Like, the, the journey that different people of color face in their lives makes them want to solve different problems than someone that hasn't faced those problems, right? And so ultimately, to me, you know, that's one of the biggest reasons diversity matters is because we want to like solve different problems. We want to have a diversity of, of even just, you know, companies that people are starting out of passion and out of their experiences.
2: Yeah, and, and to the how, one is, you know, it's, it's, it's intentionality, right? I mean, we, we hired a female partner, when, which, you know, we're a tiny firm, right? People think of us as being like a big Silicon Valley firm. We have five par- investing partners. At the time, we hired uh, our, uh, Sarah Tavel, our first uh, female full GP she was 25% of the firm, right? So um, you know it was a, it was a fairly significant hire in, in that regard, and and we, and we have a long way to go. We've only really just started. Um, so and that's one aspect of it. The other aspect of it is a, a real, again, intentional approach to in, to founding to investing in, in founding female uh, CEOs, and and you know build as we were using him as an example. I'll use him again. I think 40% of his portfolio currently is. Uh, has ha, is, is helmed by women CEOs. And that's up from zero 10 years ago.
3: Yep. Intentionality is super important. I think it's also good to sort of say, I am going to do this, right? I'm going to get, uh, so put some stakes in the ground. What is, what is it that you feel like you need to have um, funded? Um, you know, is it 25%? Is it 50%? Is it, what is it? But for everyone to, you know, make that intentionality sort of, real by adding some teeth to it. I wanna,
1: I wanna ask Bruce a question, um, cause I can relate to it since I'm currently raising my um, Series C for, for my company, Eleanor Health. But when, you know, there are probably a lot of entrepreneurs and students in here, when is, when is the decision made or when did you make the decision? When was the inflection point of saying, I you know, use something about a baby to the devil, yeah. <laughs> when when was that? When was the right inflection point for you to take that outside investment and to take the company to the next level? Because I think there's a lot of there's a lot of um, you know, people get really excited about. They sort of think like the victory is in closing the funding round, right? And I think that's a misrepresentation of of what it all means. And so when you know when for you was that right decision?
4: Yeah, I made a list of all the funds that, uh, all the investors that uh, I would love to have as partners. And number one on that list was L. Catterton. I then uh, talked, I looked before this panel, talked to more than 50 uh, top flight investors and tried really, really hard to get a a warm introduction to one of the partners in the growth fund at L. Catterton. And they know the space incredibly well. They'd invested early in Peloton. uh, Superlative reputation. And um, a couple warm intros just went nowhere, and then I finally found somebody who they trusted, who knew me and who trusted me, uh, really you know, knew me well, knew a partner there well, Michael Furello, and we had a deal in five days. And it was one of those magic unlock moments. And at the time, I was full of trepidation, and I gotta say, um, This is the infomercial for LCAT. They are stunningly great to work with and have accelerated our business in ways that I couldn't have dreamed of when I started. And having the right partner, um, money's not money, money is people and relationships. It's not even people, money is relationships. And I did not fully appreciate just how important those relationships are and um, it's really fascinating to see how that has grown, and it's, it's just been a huge unlock for our company. And we're super capital efficient. We're not playing in the billion-dollar raises. We're in the 50s and 100s. But it's, um, it's an opportunity to create something with a partner who is actually, once they get over the hump, once you, can, once you make that connection, those finger, then you do have this magic unlock, and the money goes from being conservative to being this extraordinary tool that is just massive leverage you know, to accelerate and has been super, super fun, and, and that has led to a whole series of relationships in the community. Hardware is, is a hard thing to invest in, and there are, it's a pretty small subset of people who are willing to bet on product market fit for something you gotta build in Taiwan and prove later that somebody's gonna like it. And uh, they're, they're really, you know, they have uh, huge amounts of courage as far as, uh, as, far as we've been concerned, and, and it's, you know, it's paid off, you can see, in, in their success.
1: And on the flip side, for the investors and you know Mitch and Meredith, you you invest seed and in you invest sort of as as early as it comes. So, how early is too early? <laughs> you know, what what do you need to see, and does it does it vary based on the experience of the the founder? You know, we talked a little bit backstage on like how much is vision, and how much is people, and how much is product. Um, would love to get your you know again, I'm sure a lot of folks in the room are thinking about or have. You know, started to, to raise funding. Would love your perspective. We can start with you, yeah. Meredith. Yeah. Okay.
3: Great. Uh, yes, we do. Uh, we are sort of multi-stage, but seed-led. So we will go as early as a pre-seed idea, uh, where it's kind of inception capital, and we will um, certainly follow those through the growth stages. And it unique about our fund is we will do some sort of insertions at later stages um, if we can underwrite great returns at that level and um, have unique access given our platform. But overall, to answer your question, what do we look for? Um, I think we touched on it a little bit. Uh, we, we are trying to avoid incremental ideas and get to, um, you know, ideas and founders that have the courage, that see a vision for a different tomorrow. And so, what does that mean? It means category creation. It means deep insight around a movement that's underway. Uh, one area, you know, as we are all very familiar with in this room, of blockchain tech. Like, it's not enough just to say, "Oh, we've got you know Web three or we're this or that." You know, it's like, do you deeply understand why? What's underneath this movement, this tech revolution that's underway, right? And and how does how are you going to get in front of that? How are you different? You know, and then do you have the um, the founder, you know, chops to sell a dream and to massively execute in a differential way? So it's kind of like insight, a way of looking at that world differently that's going to make you unique and a leader, a winner over the rest, and just um, and that ability to execute. Um, and 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 make something happen. Head in the clouds, feet on the ground. Everybody around you, go.
2: Yeah, we're Series A, Series B, so we're a little bit later, I think, probably than you guys. We, uh, you know, we're, we're pre-product market fit, really. So um, it, it is hard to really describe what it is that we look for. In a, in a lot of ways, we're an ad, we have an advocacy model, so. The way it works is that the partner who, who brings the, the, the company in, in some sense, has to kind of be able to pitch it with the conviction and passion that the founder had, <laughs> was able to pitch it with. So um, it, it requires a real, I, I think it's a, an interesting filter, because it, 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 if you can't do that, and it's very painfully apparent to your partners when you can't do that, um, it, it, it sort of takes a lot of stuff off the table. I'm, I've pulled back a little bit from... Active frontline investing, so I am not looking at as many things as I used to. But when I was when I was in it really hard, I would look at 150 opportunities to do one or two, mm-hmm. right? Like that's the and that's what you're up against as an entrepreneur trying to pitch. You know, people like us, um, we, we're very very selective because the return criteria that we have um, are just really really high. We're not looking for to play for singles and doubles. We're not looking for good businesses. We're looking for astonishing businesses, transformational businesses. And there are very few of those. And um, so it, it makes it very difficult. We, we, you, you, we say no to a lot of really good ideas. We say no to a lot of companies that ultimately work but just don't work at the scale that we require and that our our limited partners are really looking to us to deliver. Right, we're, we're, Their expectations of us aren't that we're, we're going to deliver mutual fund-type economics. They're, they're looking to us for a six or 10x fund.
5: Yeah. Um, when, you, when you think about like the way that you guys are structured and sort of your investment ethos and you know I talked to uh, a guy that's starting a new fund where it's called embedded capital and what he wants to do is actually like invest in like four to seven and take advisor shares initially put them into the fund but get really deep in there and like their hands get their hands dirty and if you compare that to this sort of new movement of like the tiger globals right. and things like that How how do you how do you look at like a a Tiger Global and their strategy is much more? Some people say, spray and pray and kind of thing, and just be in a lot of stuff. Like you have to pick winners, right? They're creating an index fund. Their returns theoretically wouldn't be as high as yours, but they would probably be more consistent because they're able to spread. Yeah.
2: Well, and and they'll probably generate with with lower performance multiples, higher absolute dollar returns. Than we will, because we have a very small fund. We typically invest out of a half billion dollar fund, so. You know but we're looking to make to return many multiples of that fund, whereas if you were investing out of a five billion dollar fund, if you could return fifty percent you you you'd basically match our performance right? right so it's a very different way I mean again, there's very, very many successful paths in the venture business. you have Andreessen who's trying to scale and and build a service uh, business and that that will work in certain contexts. We really took an artisanal approach to it and said we like working with companies over long periods of time in intimate fashion, and so you can't do that, that doesn't scale. So we've had to keep it small, and we've had to really stick to our knitting um, in terms of the kinds of, of things that we look at. And, and you just, it's not a winner-take-all business. We're not gonna be, we're not gonna win all the good deals. We just have to win enough good deals to, to be good.
1: You know, I know, I know as, a, as a founder for me, as an entrepreneur, it's, it's been an education, sort of learning about how, the, how investors think. It would be great to just, get, you know, a 101 from you guys on what, you know, what do you need to underwrite and what do you need to potentially see in like a series A versus a seed versus a B, C, because as you get more scaled, you know, the the mm-hmm. multiples get smaller in terms of what you have to yeah. underwrite. And so you know, that, that was new to me. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, I was mm-hmm. like, when when does it go from needing a 10X to a yeah. 3X? Yeah. Um, that, was, that was sort of a different perspective. Yeah. So I'd love to just...
3: I mean, yes, you're right. Generally, as you kind of go through the growth stages, the maybe multiple requirement comes down. You know, we underwrite a 10X, mm-hmm. period. Across all stages. Um, that's because we are seed-led. So if I see a great... Um, you know, super late stage one where we have access to it at, you know, maybe, you know, the 10x might be like, yeah, wishful, but we're wishing. <laughs> we we want to see the potential for um, unbounded returns. Really, that that is what we're about. We are, that's why when you say 65% of venture-backed field, like, that might be like not great, but that is kind of the game we're in. It should be like a winner or it might be zero, right? And that's a venture idea, right? And so, yeah, at the early stages, we're looking at, um, you know, big ideas that can change everything. And we want to underrate 10X plus type of opportunities. And if we can't have conviction, (laughs) if someone does not have conviction around that, it doesn't really go through. Because it's like, why are we doing that right we there it's there are some amazing ideas and amazing founders that don't have that kind of return potential so you know that's okay but it's just not the right for us
2: yeah i, I don't really have anything to add i think we we're, we're, we're in kind of in a similar similar circumstance we're really we're big game hunting
0: mm-hmm.
2: to to put it uh, succinctly, and, and it, that's difficult to do, and you're often wrong. I mean, yeah. uh, I was, uh, I w- w- t- was riding in a, in a car last night uh, with an entrepreneur and somebody who I've invested in personally just from my own account, not through Benchmark, and uh, we were chatting, and he was like, hey, tell me about a couple of deals that you regretted passing on, and I was like, do you have a year it 's like i 've passed on so many great companies right and it's just it 's just the way it is you can 't get it all right all the time You're, you know i 've had to, to your point i 've had a bunch of things go to zero right a, a bunch of them and i, I don 't feel great about that but i 've also had a couple of things go one hundred x or more, and those more than paid for those few companies that went to zero right the, the things again the asymmetry of our business is that On maybe in aggregate, on the deals that went to zero, I lost 50 million bucks. And on the couple deals that went to 100, I made 5 billion. So, I mean, that's, it's, so you got to take risks. You got to be a gambler.
1: In that, in that sort of spirit of, of big game hunting and before I, I think I'll have a couple minutes to look at some, some questions um, from the audience, but I'll get in trouble if I don't ask the, the four of you what, you know, what big themes and what, you know, opportunities are you really excited about? You know, uh, Meredith and Mitch, you were debating on VR yeah. um, uh, backstage. We had one of you was bullish and one of you was bearish. Um, and, you know, we'd love to, would love to maybe can start with um, Bruce, since you're, you're an entrepreneur, you're an mm-hmm. innovator. What are you, you know? You can you can be excited just about hydro because sort of that's sort of I, how I work. I am think.
4: excited about the possibility to personalize people's whole health journey in a way that is meaningful. Eighty percent of the people, so one hundred percent of the people know that they should do something for health, and that is the new luxury. You can't buy a car to be happy. You got to feel good in yourself in your body, and uh, people are missing two things. One is the recipe, and the other is the motivation. And um, Species actually are all intrinsically motivated and they all exercise a lot. But uh, generally speaking, the vast majority of people need that extra, you know, if you need 10 units, they need one more unit of motivation. And so bringing together your Apple Watch, your Aura, your Fitbit, if it doesn't burn you, and a few other, uh, the, the information from your phone and putting that into a recipe that has a footprint in your home, that's Hydro. And I'll tell you what, in 2030, All of you are gonna feel better in yourself. You're also gonna be kinder to your family and your coworkers because you feel better. You're gonna experience for 20 or 30 minutes every day community and you're gonna understand that you depend on other human beings and you're gonna have that visceral experience in your body and as a result you're gonna make better decisions at work. And we say at Hydro pretty regularly that in 2050 the biomass of bugs will not be as diminished as it would be if we didn't create Hydro. That's a little bit esoteric, but it's our long-term goal. I'm so passionate about this journey that we're on, and truthfully, if there is an idea in this audience that can do it better, faster than we're doing it, I quit my job, I'm with you. It's really, I think it's an incredibly important mission that we're on, and using money to do it, power of capitalism, I really believe strongly in that. And I also, I just wanna say, um, if we are wrapping up a little bit, our hearts go out to the people in Ukraine, uh, thinking a lot about the trauma that we've been through with COVID and then adding on a trauma of another war. Um, it really is this, this mission to create that community and those feelings of connection is even more important today. So uh, we're, we're super passionate about that stuff. Cool.
5: Um, one, I think, since we're at a, a data conference, right, I think that I, one of the things that, that I'm seeing or that I think is exciting is around, you know, AI and data, not from a standpoint of like, it's been a promise that we've had for a long time. And I think what's more interesting now is that we're starting to actually really look at real business problems, whether it's, you know, customer service or things that really AI can solve for. And with the wealth of data that we're starting to get um, and be able to collect and be able to operationalize around I think like vertical SaaS, which is like a very boring thing is still an area that's really interesting because in many of these more niche industries, you've had a disconnect from people that really understand AI and technology and people that really understand the core business problems that need to be solved. And now that AI and data, like it's becoming a commodity. It's not like, you know, like the same skill set, the same models, the same, you know, ML techniques, like most everyone knows them now and, and knows. And now what we really need to do is continue to marry those with people that understand the core business problems and can help solve those specifically in you know, vertical spaces where there are still very big problems to be solved. So it's not super sexy, but it is a really interesting thing for you guys to think about as a lot of you guys, I'm sure, are experts in, in AI and know how to do data science and like, for you to think about what are some real core business problems that can be solved versus like, what are the coolest, sexiest problems that should be solved
1: jeff just like just a follow-up on that because i had this conversation with bruce um, who uses data obviously to, to further enable and enrich his product is it data as a product or is it data as an enabler to a different product in a vertical
5: i mean it's all of it right i mean there's tons of data as a product companies like there's uh you know they they're obviously with gdpr and a lot of the privacy stuff there's been a lot of pushback but My hope is someone I led data science and analytics at Twitter for a while My, my hope is that all of that makes it easier for us to use data because we become much more transparent about how we use data and we allow people to like opt in and like allow us to use that data right like I'll tell the story of like my wife my wife constantly talks about how she doesn't want um, to be tracked around the internet, uses incognito browsers, deletes cookies, and then literally will say to me, God, that's the third thing I bought on Instagram today. They really know me. And because they're <laughs> delivering real value for her, she's okay with them using that data. So I think that hopefully we'll be able to start you know, becoming much more transparent in how we use data and actually helping improve customer experience. Um, but I, I think it's all of it, right? I mean, th- this whole thing is just a big stack, right? If you think about all the different advances we've had in processing and and ability to collect data and ability to store. I mean, it's just the problems that we can solve just become more and more interesting.
2: Cool. I mean, I spent 20 years in the video game business before I became a venture capitalist. So, uh, and I I still think the venture, and and as a venture capitalist, I invested in things like Riot Games at Series A, which did League of Legends, which has become one of the most popular games in the world. Um... One of my portfolio companies just announced this morning a $150 million financing at very, very high valuation for for one of the most successful sort of mobile MMOs, primarily in in, in Asia. I still think we're in early innings in the the video game business. Um, I think a lot of the BS that we're hearing um, from some large Silicon Valley companies about the metaverse We've been we've been in the metaverse in the video game business for twenty years, right? It's like we've been we we've, we've been living in the future. We've had virtual currencies. We've had all of these things that are the shiny new thing in, in the in, in in the valley these days. We've had we we've, we've been exploring them for decades, and so uh, I still think there's a lot of greenfield in in the games business, and I, st- I I still think there's a lot of really interesting stuff to do there. It's something I'm still very excited about. Um, you know, on the VR debate, I, I think I'm I'm on the I'm a little bit on the curmudgeonly side of the VR debate. I, I think it's a peripheral, not a platform, and I think all of these comparisons to the mobile phone, uh, like oh, it's the next mobile phone, are not correct. Um, so I think that's uh, that's not something I'm particularly interested in. Um, And then, obviously, the Web3 stuff. Again, I'm cautious. I think there's a lot of bullshit in the market right now. There's a lot of hype, a lot of pump and dump, a lot of wash transactions. There's a lot of just nonsense going on in that space. But there is something core in there that's fascinating to me. And I think if we look a little over the horizon of bored apes and that kind of stuff, there's there's the nugget of something transformational there, and, and I continue to pay very a, a lot of attention to it, uh, despite my the fact that a lot of the stuff I'm seeing in the present doesn't interest me.
5: But when you think about like this concept that you were talking about, like this is like the future all over again in the world of like, and executives come to me all the time and ask me about things like. The metaverse or Web three. What advice would, would you tell them to study the gaming industry from twenty years ago to yeah. understand like how these things play out and work?
2: I, I've met with the CEOs of of many of the leading uh, Web three game companies, right, the crypto gaming companies, mm-hmm. and like by the end of some of these hour long conversations, I'm like, dude, you really need to just go play Eve online, right? <laughs> because they did this all fifteen years ago, right? It's like they they've solved all of the edge case problems that you're about to get swamped by. Yes. So I, I do really think that there's a there, there's a lot to learn from going back and looking at some of uh, the mistakes we've made in the games business and some of the successes.
1: And, and you're talking later about
2: NFTs. I am talking so, later about NFTs. If you so they, really want yeah. to be bored, come to that one. <laughs> <laughs>
3: um, so I'll touch on a couple of themes that We're particularly interested in, and some that I think are just relevant from the rest of the day's discussion as well. One you mentioned uh, women's sports, and we are um, very bullish on the rise of women's sports. Both as a, you know, I spoke about, you know, kind of looking at what are the movements underway. And this one I see as both a cultural and a commercial movement. It's time. Um, It's 50% of the population. Women have game. (laughs) They've got the same drive. They've got incredible talent. It's a great product. There's drama. There's excellence. Um, the visibility that hasn't been there uh, with less than 4% or right around there, visibility around the game that, um, it, you know, um, well, that's the media visibility. Well, I would say is when you look at actually what's happening is it's super exciting, right? People are showing up. And when you look at the Canadian versus the US gold medal game, more viewership on that than any, any, any NHL game uh, for the whole season. Uh, when you look at viewership for the WNBA, for the um, NWSL, when it's on, people watch it. And uh, ESPN just selling out for the whole NCAA um, tournament for all their ad sponsorships. Like what brands are finding is that it's a super engaged audience. So when we look at, like, what's going on, there are these cultural inflections, there are technological inflections, there are regulatory inflections. When you look at the intersections of these movements, sometimes they may have been happening for a long time, but we reach a tipping point, and then something happens, and there's recognition, and the markets follow. So I think um, Rise of Women's Sports, we're really we're invested in Just Women's Sports, which is trying to do just that, uh, uh, increased visibility. Second, I think blockchain tech, even though there's been, it's, it's, it's never just like, ooh, switch a light and it's on, but blockchain tech is changing everything. I really do believe that. Um, now, a lot of that change has been underway, but just being able, like seeing how, you know, it's going from like, you know, even the new generation, you know, offline to online, and it's online to on-chain, on-chain allowing access voice ownership of assets um, in ways that I think are material and are exciting. And it is sort of democratizing some of these markets, commercial markets for the creators to get access to capital like in ways we haven't seen before. What crypto's doing and getting, um, I think, changing uh, you know sort of asset classes. Um, is it its own asset class? You, know, if you guys read the ARC study that came out or is it part of every asset class? We'll see. Um, but I do think blockchain tech is, and gaming in particular, which is in our space as well, is super exciting. We just invested in a company called Monkey League. It's a play-to-earn game, monkeys playing <laughs> playing soccer, um, but in a, in a 3D kind of um, format. It's exciting, and you can sort of this synergy of, of gaming and monetization coming together. So there's... I think a lot of really interesting things there. Um, Last two, I would say fan engagement. It has been (laughs) the constant focus, I think, over the ages, but now with the data that's available to us to really deeply understand and know our consumers and our customers, drive personalization applications towards them so that they can further engage. The immersive piece that we were talking about is does a fan engagement experience move from physical spaces to the metaverse and virtual spaces? Has it already or where is it going? How does that become a more exciting way for people to you know, engage with the things they love, but not only in the physical space, but um, experience and role play and all of that and socialize in, um, in the digital world. And the last thing um, I would just say in the human performance space that we're really excited about, all the biometric tracking, yes, the whoop, the aura, that Fitbit that doesn't burn up. Um, But um, I think it's about quantification of self. And it's not just the body, but I think it's the mind. And to me, that's the next frontier. How are we going to get to our best selves as we start to think about harnessing stress management, our, our stress levels, our mental, how do we get to that state of flow? And I think that's what's already underway with a lot of neurotech that's going on. But I think we're just at the beginning. So those are some of the spaces I'm really excited about.
1: Great. Um, well, I wanted to get to a couple of the audience questions. We don't, we don't have much time at all left. I will say that what seemed to resonate with the audience is the, um, you know, the, the un- underrepresented founders for sure. And you know, I think a lot of us would be happy to answer those, those questions you know, as a underrepresented founder whose co-founder is a black female. Um, would be happy to answer those questions since we get an infinitesimal percentage of the funding. But because we have less than a minute left, I'll throw it out to um, the panelists. What is your single piece of advice for an individual pursuing an entrepreneurial venture in 10 seconds or less? Um, We'll start with Bruce.
2: Make friends with Kevin Hart. (laughs) Understand that uh, financial decision making, a lot of times at early stage in venture, is emotional rather than intellectual, and don't think that there's a pre-flight checklist that you need to kind of check all the boxes, and that if you do, you're going to be able to, to make a, a an investor love your company. It, you need to you need to be able to connect emotionally with a with a, with a potential investor because they're they're trying to make a decision with no no market relevant information. So they're trusting you. And so you really need to understand that. And, you, 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 and, it, it's, and you, I'm not passing because you didn't say something. I'm passing because you didn't emotionally connect with me.
5: Um, I think it's, it's really about making sure that this is a, an idea that you're comfortable talking about every day, multiple times a day for the rest of your (laughs) foreseeable future. Yes, Because if it's not something that you're, then you shouldn't do it. Because you're always gonna be selling this, you're gonna be working on this, you're in for the long haul. So be be sure it's something that you wanna talk about.
3: Have the courage to avoid convention, conventional pathways, don't fall into that trap. Wage asymmetric war on convention because you have to disrupt in order to win.
1: And I'll, I'll, do, I'll do it, too. Um, be, uh, be, be passionate and have conviction about your mission and about the world that you're, you're trying to create. Um, with that, thank you, guys. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you all for coming.
2: This recording is the property of 42 Analytics and may not be published, broadcast, rewritten, or redistributed without the express written consent of 42 Analytics. Any opinions expressed by panelists are their own and do not represent the beliefs of the conference, 42 Analytics, or the MIT Sloan School of Management. 42 Analytics Educational, Inc. reserves all rights in the content.